There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And if you can, please stand when you get that. <clears throat> First Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and telling them, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Canaanites, Go, depart, get down from here among the Amalekites, so I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, and the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." Father, I just pray that you would take your word today. This is a very difficult portion of Scripture. And I know there's probably a lot of questions among the congregation about what this means. I pray you would take your Holy Spirit and uh, just make it clear to us this morning, Father. Uh, give me the ability to be faithful to your word. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I wondered who would show up after my one call. This is a very difficult passage of Scripture, so let's go ahead and just dig right into it. Look at verse 1 with me. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Here the original language is a little bit more vivid. It reads, hear the sound of the words of the Lord. We find ourselves today surrounded by many sounds. It seems that no matter where we turn, there is another sound fighting for our attention. Now, granted, lots of sounds are just background noises, but some sounds catch our attention. Some sounds affect us deeply. A piece of music, a baby's cry, an explosion, 
some type of news. But among all the sounds in the world, there is only one sound that we should supremely learn to listen for, and that is the sound of God speaking in that still, small voice. And it encourages me this morning that although Saul had repeatedly failed, the Lord sends Samuel to give him yet another opportunity to do something right. That's what the Lord always does to his children. He sends messenger after messenger and gives us opportunity after opportunity to walk wisely and to live successfully. But there does come an end to those opportunities to do the right thing. Ultimately, as we shall see, Saul just doesn't get it, and his poor decisions will finally end up destroying him. Therefore, as we look at this story before us and we see Saul's plight, I think God would say to us what he says to Saul. Take heed, give ear, and listen up to my word. A key word of this whole admittedly difficult section can be seen in verse 2. One version renders it, I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek. It is reminiscent of the term that Jesus uses to describe the final judgment. Every person here will one day have to give an account of themselves before God. Forget the Supreme Court. There is only one truly supreme judge. It's as if God is saying, I have decided it's time for Amalek to face my judgment. And judgment is God's prerogative. He's the only one who can judge and he always judges rightly. But what exactly did the Amalekites do that deserves punishment? Well, a little background would help. They were the first human threat to the people of Israel after the Exodus. On that occasion, God told Moses to write down this promise. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 17:14. And about four decades later, before the Israelites entered the promised land, Moses reminded them with these words. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that your Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget this. Now, in the Bible, Amalek is a picture of the flesh. In Deuteronomy 25, we are told that the Amalekites would attack the back of the people as they marched through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. In other words, the Amalekites would pick off those who were sick, feeble, and elderly. They were the human equivalent of jackals or hyenas. And the Jews were not to forget how during this wilderness wanderings that the Amalekites attacked them, not man to man, not face to face, but from the back. The Israelites were to remember how the Amalekites would wait in hiding until they passed by, and then they would attack those who were weary, old, and feeble. We, too, have an enemy who attacks us the exact same way. Be sober, Peter said. Be vigilant. Your adversary goes around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5, 7, or 5, 8, I'm sorry. 
It is said that in the jungle, the lion wakes up each day knowing that he simply must outrun his slowest prey. And the same is true for us this morning spiritually. For like the lion, Satan will attack the weariest or the feeblest among us. And like Amalek, he often will find them at the back of the pack. That is also exactly how the flesh works, by the way. It exploits the areas in our life where we are weak, feeble, or simply just holding back. This is a word that I need to remember, a word of which we need to be reminded constantly. Because we can say, I've been walking with the Lord for a number of years. I've been involved in a lot of battles. I need to kick back and take it easy and cruise a while. Not realizing that those who think they deserve a break are the ones that are the ones that are the very vulnerable to an attack. He was a great man, a godly man. Year after year, he led his troops into battle. He was their commander, and he was their king. But at the age of 50, he said, I've fought long enough. I'm going to relax for a while. So he sent another man to lead the troops while he stayed behind. And on the roof of his palace one night, enjoying the view of the golden city of Jerusalem, his eyes came across a woman taking a bath. Intrigued with her, he had an affair with her and then tried to cover it up by murdering her husband. He should have been fully engaged against the enemy. He should have been front and center in that battle. Instead, he thought he deserved a break. And as a result, life was never the same for David, for his family, or for his kingdom. And the same thing can happen to you and I. Hey, we say, I've been walking with the Lord for 25 years. Why do I have to have devotions and go to Bible study? Why not let someone else teach Sunday school? Why not let someone else work in the nursery? Why not let someone else go to home group? I'm tired. When a friend of mine found out how many sermons I listened to a week, he says something to the effect of, well, you're just a lot more holy than I am. To which I reply, the reason why I do such things is not because I'm holy. In fact, it's just the opposite. I do it because I know how very unholy Bill Scott can be if he lets his flesh run the show. I agree with Damian Kyle who says that the pastors aren't the superstars in the kingdom, but instead we're the remedial class, so God has to keep us in the word so we don't get in any trouble. We all need to be careful that we don't grow weary in saying, I fought the fight, and now it's time to cruise. Always remember, Amalek attacks the back of the pack, and he'll be waiting. Verse 3, please. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I guess our first question would be, who are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites descended from Esau, the unbelieving brother of Jacob. Amalek was a people deeply and consistently set against God and his people. God's covenant with the Jewish nation has this promise. I will curse him who curses you. And God always keeps his word. Nations like the Amalekites 
wanted to exterminate the Jews. And by doing so, they weren't just waging war on Israel. They were opposing Almighty God and his great plan of redemption for the entire world. People are either for the Lord or they are against him. And if they are against him, then they must suffer the consequences. Now, some people find it difficult to believe that the Lord would command an entire nation to be destroyed. Now, some of these critics depend much more on sentiment than on spiritual truth, not realizing how long-suffering the Lord had been with these nations and how unspeakably wicked they were. Their savagery is likely unequaled in all of human history. These people were consistently involved in things so vile and foul that I can't fully expound them in mixed company. But to just give you an idea, in Leviticus 18, God gives a list of the things that had defiled the land and for which he was specifically going to judge the inhabitants. There were only two categories, rampant sexual immorality, including bestiality, and incest of which history tells us that the Amalekites were guilty of both. We also need to realize that God has been incredibly patient waiting for these people to repent. This is 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some people count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This has been God's method of operation throughout all of history. In Genesis 15, we find this account. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites, a different evil group, has not reached its full measure. So God gives the Amorites 400 years to repent before he brings judgment. Now, during that time, anyone who repented would have been saved. In fact, if you know the story of Rahab the harlot, you know that while an Amorite, not only was she saved, but she actually was included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But God does have a limit to his patience. This tells us a couple of things. One, in some divine way, God has a way of measuring sin. And since he knows all things, he is able to pinpoint when a person, or a nation in this case, reaches the point of no return. Now, this is something that is not taught upon very often. The Bible teaches that there is a place where someone can be turned over to what the Scripture calls a reprobate mind. Listen to these words out of Romans chapter 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And just as they did not see to fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Thus, it is possible for an individual, or in this case an entire nation, 
to go so far into sin that God turns them over to that sin. Now, to some who read this story, that may seem mean or cruel. How could God call for the destruction of an entire civilization, some people ask? But the Amalekites were so corrupted and so polluted that they were actually already destroying themselves in their perversity and their sin. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God ordering the annihilation of certain civilizations because they were so corrupt and polluted that it was actually an act of mercy for him to take them out of that misery. Maybe an illustration would help us. Imagine this. Suppose we are having our church picnic, and suddenly into our midst runs a rabid dog. He's foaming at the mouth, snarling, and clearly out of his mind. Some of our kids are playing ball, and he turns and runs right at our children. If I had a pistol, would I be justified in killing that dog? Sure. I couldn't allow him to bite and infect any of our kids. The only thing you can do is put the animal down. You see, a dog who has rabies already has sown within itself the seed of its own destruction. That dog is going to die. It is just a matter of time. It's much the same way in this account we're reading this morning. These people are rabid with sin, and there is no cure for their spiritual rabies. God knows that and has left no choice but to destroy them so they don't pass their moral rabies on to the children of Israel. And allow me to interject a personal application to us right here. In the same way that the Israelites were ruthless with the Amalekites, we have to be just as ruthless with any sin that is in our lives. We can't afford to pamper it, tolerate it, or ignore it. Like the Amalekites, it just won't go away by itself. Now, if we have cancer in our body, we want the surgeon to be ruthless in his dealings with it. I would tell my doctor, if in doubt, cut it out. And we have to treat sin the exact same way. We have to see it truly as the mortal danger that it really is. So I think with that explanation, most believers will understand God judging the sinful adult population. The problem for many is God's command to kill the children and the babies. Now we can look at this a couple of ways. Now please keep in mind that history tells us that even these children were being used in these bizarre sexual practices. Not only that, unbelievers always want to bring out how cruel God was in killing the children, while in their ignorance they don't realize that the Amalekites themselves killed many of their own babies as an act of sacrifice to their pagan gods. Let's keep in mind, if God were to allow them to live, they would almost for certain grow up and start building another group of rabid people. Well, couldn't the children of Israel just sort of adopt the kids and take them with them? The problem with that is that because of their despicable sexual practices, it is believed that everyone, including the children, were ate up with venereal diseases and thus would eventually pass them on to the nation of Israel. My friends, God has his reasons for doing things, and they are always right whether we understand them or not. 
God says in Ezekiel 18.23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he should turn from his ways and live? Always keep in the forefront of your mind that our God is a merciful and a compassionate God, and he will go to extreme measures to reconcile his creation, even allowing the death of his own son. God receives no pleasure from the Amalekites' destruction. But here's the thing I think that most people forget about. Instead of allowing these children to stay in that wretched condition, God in his mercy spares them from that hellish life and takes them straight to paradise. We can forget that this life isn't all that there is. And the most important thing isn't this life that fades like a flower or the morning mist. No, the most important thing is eternity. And I can promise you one thing. All of those children who went to be with the Lord that day aren't complaining this morning about the judgment and the justice of God. We can be assured this morning that the eternal God always does what is completely right in each and every situation. Verse 4, please. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Canites, Go depart, get down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canites departed from among the Amalekites. There is no way to lessen the horror of this moment. The sound of the words of God to Saul that day was terrible. But it must be remembered, this was the holy and righteous judgment of God, the Lord of hosts. Saul's mission to judge the Amalekites was a local, small-scale anticipation of the judgment that will finally come one day to the whole world at the hands of God's appointed king. Now, much modern-day Christianity wants to keep Christ but deny the divine judgment that he is appointed one day to bring. And such make-believe is a terrible distortion of biblical truth. Moments like this in the Old Testament must not be avoided. Now, they, of course, must not also be lifted out of context and caricatured. Sometimes such terrible biblical incidents are condemned as genocide or ethnic cleansing. But this is to measure the events by modern moral categories while disregarding the Bible's own evaluation of them in context. These episodes should remind us that God always has been and still is the judge of all the earth and only does what is just and what is right. And remember this also, God is omniscient. That simply means he knows everything, kind of like a teenager. But in knowing everything, God was able to look ahead into the future and know exactly what generation of the Amalekites would have in their group no one who would repent. And not that the conquering Israelites were without sin, by the way. Deuteronomy 9.5 makes it clear to the Israelites for it reminds them, It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of the land but on account of the wickedness of these nations. That tells us these nations were cut off to prevent the corruption of Israel and the rest of the world. And just as surgeons do not hesitate to amputate an arm with gangrene, 
even if that means cutting off some healthy flesh, sometimes God must do the same. And although the Kenites were neighbors of the Amalekites, they had shown kindness to Israel, perhaps because Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a Kenite. Saul says, we don't want you to get caught up in the middle of this war with the Amalekites. And they wisely heeded his warning and left. And by the way, that was an act of mercy that no pagan nation would have practiced in that day. Saul was not prepared to risk collateral damage. And carefully, and perhaps at some risk to his own operation, he warned them to get out of the way. Later on in the book of Judges, we find a woman by the name of Jael who drove a tent peg into the head of Sisera. She's kind of the patron saint of all angry women. But anyway, she was also a Kenite. I threw that in, no extra charge. Verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. We read, and he allowed the Israelite soldiers to save the best of the flocks and the herds. But if the Lord says something is condemned, how can we say it's the best? Even though the Lord told Saul to eradicate everyone, Saul spares also the life of King Agag. Do you know what I think is interesting? No, what, Bill? Agag's name literally means a flame. And likewise, we also have to be careful that we don't allow any of the flames of our past to be relit. Because if we do, one day that self-same flame will burn us. Agag was spared by Saul, which will prove to be a very costly error. You see, because Saul didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites, years later when he was wounded on Mount Geboa in a battle against the Philistines, Saul is going to try to fall on his sword and commit suicide, but he doesn't die right away. A man approaches him, and well, I'll just let him tell you what happened. This is 2 Samuel 1.7. When King Saul looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, Here I am. He said, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life lingers within me. I am an Amalekite. It will be an Amalekite who will eventually and ultimately run a sword through King Saul. What a great illustration. If I don't kill the flesh, the flesh will kill me. Ask Saul. He thought he could control Agag. But he found out that one of Agag's descendants would one day kill him. If you think because you've destroyed certain aspects of your flesh and have Agag in chains and no longer have to worry, that, my friends, is when we need to watch out. Agag will prove to be the one that gives birth to another fleshly tendency that will do you in. And sometimes we can fall into the folly of Saul, thinking we have our flesh under control. But we fail to realize that our failure to deal with it completely will always have ramifications. Let me tell you something about sin. 
There comes a point in sin where we are no longer in control. Anytime we play with sinful behavior, there will always be a moment in which that sin takes over. It's kind of like a soda machine. Let's say you're on a diet, but one day get an incredible urge for a real calorie-packed bottle of Coke, not a trace of NutraSweet in it. Well, the Coke is a dollar, and you just happen to have four quarters. So you put the first quarter in, but your diet is still safe. You stick another quarter in. You're getting closer, but you still not cross the line. You put the third quarter in. Well, now you're on dangerous ground. You can still hit the change return button, but instead you stick the final quarter in. Now listen carefully. Once you cross the line by putting in that fourth quarter, and as soon as you hit that button, a series of events will now begin in which you have absolutely no control over. The machine now is in control and your mo- of all your money. The next thing you know, you're drinking that ice-cold Coke with your diet, a distant memory. Sin is just like that. We may think we can handle the temptations, and we may only put in a quarter at a time, but eventually we will put the whole dollar in. And then we are at the mercy of whatever vice that we thought we had controlled. You may be thinking, Bill, I've been a Christian for 20 years. There is no way I would ever be tempted by you fill in that blank. I would caution us all with the words of 1 Corinthians 10:12. Therefore, let him who stands take heed lest he falls. We must never lean on our own strength apart from God. The old hymn says, stand up, stand up for Jesus, stand in his strength alone. The arm of the flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We can't sow wild oats and then pray for a crop failure. If we play around with sin, sowing without regard to the outcome, one day the seeds of that sin will sprout in our life. I think if you were to plant some flowers tomorrow, you wouldn't expect a full bloom the very next day. And it takes time to grow. Well, so, does, so does it also with sin. And we may think that we are the exception, that we can handle this indiscretion regardless of what it might be. But God is not mocked. If we don't deal with the sin, we should not be shocked when one day we wake up and find out that it's no longer us who controls that sin, but now it is that sin that is controlling us. There's an old saying that said, the Indian took a drink, the drink took a drink, and then the drink took the Indian. As I close, let me leave you with one last thought. If these people would have been permitted to live, they would have caused more trouble in the future than is imaginable. In fact, when we get to the book of Esther, in about 85 years, we will get acquainted with one of them by the name of Haman. A couple hundred years after this account, we come to the story of Esther. The book of Esther deals with a villain named Haman who was determined to destroy the Jews. But get this, Haman was an Agagite. That tells us he was a descendant of King Agag, the solid spared. 
That's 200 years after Saul. The nation still feels the ramifications of his failure to deal with the flesh. Haman was an Amalekite who tried to exterminate the Jews, and had not God intervened, he probably would have. When we get God's perspective in all this, I think we can understand what we're talking about with this command. And very candidly, since you and I aren't God, there is no way we should ever dare to pass judgment on him. Simply put, there is a reason why he is God and we are not. And personally, I'm glad for that. Lord, you always do what is just and right. Even those times when we look at it from our fleshly standpoint, and it just seems so hard. But Lord, we know that even all the babies and all the children under the age of accountability, that very day, Lord, you love them enough to not allow them to stay in that kind of situation. But you took them to be with yourself, and one day we'll meet them. And uh, I know that none of them are going to be sorry that you did that. I pray, Lord, just this section of Scripture, as difficult as it can be, will once again just encourage us and let us know that you are only good and you only do what is right. Let us know that. Put that in our hearts, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.